When C.C. Wong met his mom's new tenant, he never suspected he'd end up getting replaced as a son, or that his replacement might have sinister motives. This week, Invisibilia looks at the things we don't say to our loved ones and the misunderstandings it can lead to. Listen on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my extended conversation with Maria Popova and Natalie Batalia at the 2018 On Being Gathering. Listen to our produced show with them wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. Hello, everyone. Are we on? Hello. Hello, hello. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I truly am. (laughs) I can tell those are good conversations. You can continue later. (laughs) Oh, I meant it. Well, okay, I'll just, I'm just going to start in. Um, The only... The only announcement I have is that if you came early before the tote bags were being handed out, there are tote bags at the lodge. Um, so I, I hadn't gotten one, for example. And, and I mean, I think there may be, I, I know there are people who came just a little early. So just, uh, it's full of lovely things. So get that if you don't have it. Um, Natalie Batalia's Twitter profile. Okay, I was going to, I meant to look this up or ask you. Eukaryote? Eukaryote. Eukaryote. Yes. See, I didn't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> that was um, very close. Her Twitter profile is Eukaryote, which basically we are all eukaryotes, right? An organism whose cells contain a nucleus surrounded by a membrane and whose DNA is bound together by proteins. <laughs> That's the definition I got online. Um, uh, okay, e- eukaryote. Did I say that right? Eukaryote. Oh, eukaryote. Yeah. On. On planet Earth, eukaryote on planet Earth using self-awareness and empathy to experience love and seek knowledge. Astronomer involved in search for life on exoplanets. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She leads the science investigation effort for the Kepler mission, the Kepler Space Telescope, which is NASA's first mission to find Earth-sized planets beyond our solar system, which are potentially habitable. Natalie is the first woman from NASA to receive Time's 100 Most Influential People last year in 2017. <laughs> and and I, loved, uh, I loved what, one of, what somebody at the astrophysics, the, the astrophysics division director at NASA headquarters when this came through said, it's wonderful to see her recognized for the influence she has had on the world on the, and on the way we see ourselves in the universe. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just looking up Kepler. So how many um, exoplanets now have been identified? It's like over 5,000? It's about 5,000. And then, you know, yeah. just today when I was looking online, there's, you know, they had the little news flashes mm-hmm. on Google, and it was one day ago, NASA's Kepler mission identifies 100 more exoplanets. 100 more, 95, yeah. yep. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Maria Popova is, you know, I, I don't know how to, it's hard to describe either one of these women. Uh, she describes herself as a reader, writer, interestingness, hunter-gatherer, and curious mind at large. Um, I'm just going to read some more of her language, you know, the, the core ethos behind brain pickings, which is a one-woman labor of love, is that, yeah. <laughs> the core ethos is that creativity is a combinatorial force. And brain pickings is an ongoing inquiry into how all of our different, different disciplines illuminate one another to glean some insight, and these are her words again, directly or indirectly, into that grand question of how to live and how to live well. And Maria also single-handedly reminds us that the internet and social media 
can be places where we trade wisdom and sustenance and substance and deep learning and deep thinking. And that even that kind of exchange and experience online can have millions of followers. Um, so we have here an astrophysicist who writes about love and empathy and a literary thinker who takes what she calls a telescopic view of time. <laughs> I'm so excited to have the two of them together. And I want to start um, by hearing from each of you. I don't know, Maria, let's start with you. Um, something in however you would define the spiritual background of your life that is especially present to you now in the sense of nourishing or troubling or animating or all three. Hmm. Well, I am an atheist who finds a lot of meaning and nourishment and spiritual sustenance in nature, uh, particularly in, I would say, the cosmic nature of reality, the cosmic aspect, but also very much the earthly, the being out in these beautiful redwoods today. And I mean, I don't think it's an accident. It's called a cathedral the, down there. I don't know how many of you went. I really recommend it. I suppose more of the Whitman bent of when all else is exhausted and society and business and politics, what remains? Nature remains. And of course, we are part of nature and this connection between the rest of the natural world and ourselves, I find the most elemental nourishing force that there is. Natalie, what about you? I had a feeling you were going to ask yeah, a well, question yeah. like that. <laughs> you <need> a little <laughs> um, First of all, as a scientist, I can, is there, are there any scientists in the audience? Oh, yeah, I yeah. feel less alone. Yeah. Thank you. That's fantastic. I feel like a fish out of water being here a little bit. Um, I keep saying to people, you know, when you look at the thumbnails of all of the different faculty that are here, it's like a game of which one of these things does not belong. That's me. Um, but I, I do consider myself to be a spiritual person, but I've grappled a lot with what the definition of spirituality is. I'm not sure that we have a common definition. Um, the word spirit in and of itself invokes like supernatural, maybe, and I have a problem with that. I don't prescribe to supernatural phenomena or miracles or the idea of a divine being who interferes. Um, and my, my core feelings of um, mystery, I guess my spirituality can best be characterized as a deep reverence for mystery. Yeah. And, and as science, as a scientist, you know, I, I just feel that so keenly. My spirituality has evolved tremendously, so it's not a static thing, and it's still evolving. Uh, it's gone through many different phases. But at this moment in my life, um, you know, as a scientist, we don't like to say that we believe anything. That word, is, I have a huge problem with the word believe because it implies taking something on faith, and I like to have evidence. And I, I like, I'm very comfortable in the unknown, you know, being, as David White says, in a conversation with the unknown. That's where I love to be. I'm at home there. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so, so I guess I lost my train of thought. But yeah, well, I think scientists actually have a, a richer vocabulary and, like, you know, inhabit mystery. And don't just, don't just honor it, but delight in it. I, as much as anybody in our society, I think more than most of the theologians I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I ask myself, well, do I have any kind of faith? That's another word that I kind yeah. of grapple with. Um, and I think at the, at the crux of it, even a scientist does have a faith of sorts. Like, for example, I, I live my life um, with the idea that the universe can be described by a set of physical laws that are quantifiable and knowable, and that they apply anywhere in the universe. And that's an assumption, right? I mean, the scientist doesn't really have a notion of an absolute truth, but that is a core assumption. And in fact, I would take it a step further and say that I live my life as if every mystery can be revealed and that there is no limit to our knowledge. And, and that's a controversial statement, mm -hmm. but I just love living that way because to me it opens up possibility mm. and it drives me. And I find it very compelling and exciting. Thank you. 
And I want to add also, I've been thinking since the conversations yesterday about this notion of prayer and how it relates to the unknown and yeah. to physical laws and the notion of somebody interceding on your behalf to grant a prayer. And I much prefer to think of prayer as something that clarifies us to ourselves, clarifies our desires and our intentions, as opposed to uh, beseeching some violation of the laws of physics on our behalf. And um, in that way, I mean, poetry is a big form of spiritual practice for me, because I think a poem like a scientific theory is a kind of map to a fragment of reality that may never be fully describable and discernible to the subjective observer, but is nonetheless best described by mapping, by um, extrapolating some landscape of truth from the territory of the known, and in doing so, continually pushing mm -hmm. further and further out the frontier of the knowable into the unknown. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And also, I think poetry uses words to point beyond what words can can name. Mm. You know, Maria, when you and I spoke a couple of years ago, um, you said something so interesting. You talked about a way you think about the work you do with brain pickings, um, which, you know, brain pickings is a way of sharing what you're reading and thinking and connections between these things. Um, you said you feel like sometimes you're engaged in a kind of spiritual generational reparenting. Um, in the sense that, and this is what you said, caring for these bygone thinkers while at the same time imbuing the present generation with their hand-me-down wisdom and their most enduring ideas. And recently, um, I think this is a good example, and actually this year you were writing about Zadie Smith on optimism and despair, a contemporary writer. And you managed to get James Baldwin and Shakespeare in, like one, you know, with all of them within three sentences. Well, with Zadie Smith, it's not hard, but. <laughs> okay, all right. But yeah, but you, you pay attention to that and you underline it for us, right? It's like something you go through the book and it's underlined and you say, oh yeah, this is really important. You were talking about the cyclical nature of history. You said James Baldwin knew when, in considering why Shakespeare endures, he observed, it is said that his time was easier than ours, but I doubt it. No time can be easy if one is living through it. And in that piece on Shakespeare, Baldwin also said, the greatest poet in the English language found poetry where poetry is found, in the lives of the people. Mm. Something that's interested me also recently, I feel that you are you've been writing and speaking a little bit more about Bulgaria, about where you came from, and how, even though you're, you are young, not yet an elder like me, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, um, you, you, li you still lived through the, the world utterly changing, like the mm. world of your childhood, and what it, you, um, but you've made an interesting connection between, you know, living through a communist dictatorship, having, having seen poems composed and scientific advances made under such tyrannical circumstances, but also recalling, not just for yourself, but for, us, for the rest of us, of this point of pride is that there was a Bulgarian folk song above mm. the Voyager spacecraft. Mm. Mm. Um, and, 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 and in this context, you've been thinking about and I've really been taking sustenance from this and quoting it everywhere. Taking a, how important it is, and it so relates to what you do, Natalie, taking a telescopic view of time as a way to inhabit this moment with some calm. Hmm. Well, I mean, there are so many layers. I think the, the Voyager is one of the greatest allegories for so much that we're grappling with today. And, and as a scientific feet Natalie can speak to, but it is the first human-made object to exit um, the, the solar system and to go into interstellar space. But as a poetic feat, aborted was the golden record, which, you know, the scientific purpose was to communicate to some other civilization who we are in this packet of um, music, recordings of languages and, and photographs. But and it's Bach and a kiss. 
And a volcano erupting. And the humpback <coughs> whale. And, yes. and a Bulgarian folk song. The brain of a woman in love. Who yeah. was the creative director of the Voyager spacecraft, um, yeah. uh, the Golden Record, um, Anna Drin, who fell in love with Carl Sagan in the course of this mission. So there's this I beautiful I think it was their, their kiss, right? That kiss? Uh, no, the kiss is not their kiss. Oh, the kiss wasn't? is Annie kissing her palm because they figured out that an actual kiss doesn't make an expressive enough sound. So this was the one staged um, <laughs> thing. <laughs> that they manufactured. That they manufactured. <laughs> right. But there are so many things about the Voyager that really ground you back into this longer view of time, one of which is, for example, I mean, this was happening in the middle of the Cold War. So yeah. to me, the more significant purpose of the Golden Record, I mean, the, the, the probability that another civilization would find it, I mean, it's a tiny little dot in the infinity of you know, interstellar right. space that would have the technology, the consciousness to decode it, very small. But it mirrored back to humanity who we are in this moment when we were so conflicted and, and polarized and had forgotten that we share this tender planet. And the Bulgarian folk song, which was one of the pieces of music, is this um, centuries-old shepherdess's a cappella song. And Bulgaria is a very old country, 14 centuries old, five of which were spent during Ottoman, under Ottoman occupation, during which there was tremendous uh, violence that was regular, that was normalized, you know, massacres and uh, rapes and murders and kids kidnapped from their homes, trained to be soldiers in the Ottoman army and sent back to murder their own families. I mean, really awful things that people survived for 500 years. And that song encodes that truth beyond language, beyond, I mean, right. you, you don't have to speak Bulgarian or no, no European history to hear those sounds and receive in your body, in your bones, both the, the sorrow and, and the, the persistence and the resilience that carried people through that. Yeah. Mm. Um, one, one of the things um, you've noted, um, you know, when you were writing about that, you wrote, it's worth keeping the Voyager in mind as we find our capacity for perspective constricted by the stranglehold of our cultural moment, and including the fact that, uh, you know, there was actually recently this report, you were talking about the proportion of the news and how much else is happening that is not, that we're not talking about. And in fact, on scientific frontiers, mm. these have been an astonishing, beautiful couple of years. Mm. I mean, you, you know, you know, you said what imperceptible fraction was devoted to the um, to the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics awarded for the landmark detection of gravitational waves. And then Natalie, by the way, I just want to say, I listen to a lot of BBC podcasts, science podcasts, and they do, they do such a better job of this. Like, you, if you listen to the BBC, BBC Four. In our time. In our time. Oh, my God. You listen to that. Everybody needs to listen to In Our Time. Okay. And, there's also and I also think Melvin Bragg, the host, is one of the most effective feminists working is in he, this really? world. Really? Okay, we'll yeah. talk I about mean, that I mean, every other thing is about a woman and science or philosophy. Anyway, go on. <laughs> well, okay, no, okay, In Our Time, but also Inside Science. They have a, Inside Science is one, and there's one called Discovery. And they have these things hosted by scientists. And what you get is the, the thrill and the passion. But, you know... Natalie, so in April 2017, on Facebook, you posted the first image of a dark matter, matter web that connects galaxies. And you said, your friendly reminder that dark matter comprises 25% of the mass energy budget of the cosmos, while dark energy comp comprises 70%, and the normal matter that you and I are made of is just a wee 5%, and it's all connected by a cosmic web of filamentary bridges that stretch across millions of light years. Carry on. <laughs> I'm glad Facebook is good for something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, it gives you perspective, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you um, you use this word calm with regards to science, and somebody else used that word with me yesterday, saying that they find in this moment in time they find science to be calming, to give us perspective, and and certainly I'm afforded that every day. 
because everything we do and we're learning it forces you to think big picture. You know, so mm -hmm. you're really taking, you're stepping outside yourself and you're, you're going back in time and you're thinking about the furthest reaches of the galaxy and just looking at, at where, where we've been from, from the eukaryotes on, you know, or yeah. even before. Um, however, I find myself extremely conflicted because I myself don't want to feel comfortable right now. Mm -hmm. I, I want to feel uncomfortable and I want to get out of that comfort zone and I'm starting to feel more and more like science is almost an indulgence um, at this moment in time and I'm feeling more and more pulled towards the civic realm. Um, and this individual yesterday who used the word calming and said how, you know, it, it's like brings her back down, you know, and said, okay, yeah. this is just a blip. This yeah. is just a blip in time. This is insignificant. And, and frankly, you know, we, who, who to better understand than somebody who works at NASA that um, NASA is much more than any one, any one president right? Mm -hmm. We carry on, we do our things, we've got our decadal review scientists who come up with a, a strategic plan that stretches decades into the future and we're going to keep our eye on that prize and presidents come and go and, and you know, so, so I, I, I feel that. But at the same time, there's a certain urgency, especially with regards to the sustainability of life here on our own planet. Yeah. And mm -hmm. where do I draw the line? Well, I agree and disagree because I think in a way it's not separate, right? It's not, the yeah. moment we separate science from life, including the civic aspect, we diminish both. And I've, in the last year, spent a lot of time with the papers of Rachel Carson, the great marine biologist and writer who her 1962 book, Silent Spring, we can basically thank for the modern environmental movement. Um, and it's really interesting because she used science to incite, first of all, a public conscience that was just not there before that. Mm -hmm. And she, she's somebody who started out as a poet and ended up doing biology but never relinquished poetry. So she ended up becoming an incredibly poetic writer of science that in addition to changing culture and policy, I mean, um, the creation of the EPA as a direct consequence of Rachel Carson's work, the first Earth Day, but in addition to that, she also created a cultural aesthetic of thinking and writing about science in poetic terms that I think enlarged both. Yeah. And I do think there's a responsibility in that, and especially for you, Natalie, because you think so beautifully and poetically, I think you do both in your work. Yeah. And by your work, I mean not just your NASA work, but what you write on Facebook, how, what you say here, it's, I, I yeah. think it achieves both. I was thinking, because I'm aware of that, that tension in you, and it made me think, and I actually went back and looked at the transcript when I interviewed Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's at the Vatican Observatory. Mm -hmm. You do exoplanets and he does asteroids. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and he tells this story about how, you know, he's a Jesuit, right? So he, he's, um, he he's a he's, has a religious calling, and he always wanted to be an astronomer, um, but then... At some point when he was in his 20s, I think he went into the Peace Corps because he felt like this isn't the real work, right? This isn't the human work. Am I really making lives better? And how they sent him to Kenya, and um, they had him teaching. And then on, on the weekends, he would go out to visit other Peace Corps volunteers, just, you know, not in the city. And he always had a little telescope with him because that's who he was. And he had slides with him that could be powered by car batteries. And... So he thought, he thought now he was helping people in the Peace Corps and all, everybody wanted to look through the telescope. And actually, I, I pulled this out, what he said to me. He said, everybody, and then he, they would ask him to give talks. And he said, and, and they would show exactly the same oohs and ahs looking at the craters of the moon or the rings of Saturn, exactly the same as when I set this up back in Michigan. And it suddenly dawned on me, well, of course, it's only human beings that have this curiosity to understand what's that up in the sky? How do we fit into that? Who are we? Where do we come from? And this is a hunger that is as deep and as important as a hunger for food because if you starve a person in that sense, you're depriving them of their humanity. 
And he said, and being able to feed this, being able to make a person more human or make them more welcome into the great adventure of the human race for the 20th century, and now we're in the 21st, going to the moon, things like that, was really important to everybody. And he said, that's why we do this. And I just feel that that yeah. radiates from you, too. I agree with Maria. Yeah, I, I certainly feel that. Mm -hmm. um, besides our innate need to push frontiers and, and learn and the joy you know, Carl Sagan's understanding is a form of ecstasy. Um, I think understanding, knowledge, learning about the reality of our universe is a spiritual experience in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I also think that, um, well, I, I like to think that knowledge brings empathy. I mean, science has the opportunity to do good and, and to do bad, of course, and we've seen examples of that. But... Um, I would contend that when astronauts went to the moon and turned around and took a, planet, a, a picture of planet Earth with no borders, I would contend that empathy on planet Earth grew in some way. When we learn that the atoms that make up our cells were manufactured in the cores of stars, empathy grows because you realize the connectedness, not just of all humans, but of all humans and all living creatures, everything in our biosphere, our shared biosphere. Um, here we are looking for life. You know, is there life out there? Mm -hmm. um, that's also going to change our sense of otherness and how we see us as sentient beings uh, with awareness, you know, the, you, the universe itself becoming aware. Um, and maybe that's happening elsewhere. Yeah. So, so I think that knowledge, increased knowledge, does have an opportunity to raise or help our empathic brain um, and raise empathy on planet Earth. And I value that. I really do. Um, but there's a certain irony about looking for life out in the galaxy while at the same time you know that you're potentially destroying the potential for life here on planet Earth. There's mm -hmm. an irony in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I really am struggling with it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, but I see that also as a function. Like you've said, your civic thought is shaped to a large degree by your work studying the universe and thinking about the origins of life. I mean, that, mm -hmm. again, that is a perspective and even a, a, call, a critique, a um, a concern that flows from the science you do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one practical thing that we can do as we study planetary habitability, actually, we have to think about the, the limits of life. Um, what are the boundaries? How far can you push a planet before it becomes uninhabitable? And so we look at planets like Mars and, and Venus and ask ourselves what happened in those cases. And um, so, so every time you go out and you study the universe, you learn something about yourself. And in this case, we're learning about our own planet and its propensity for life, and that's related to the sustainability or the climate change issue. So when I go out and speak to the public, I do have an opportunity to engage them in that kind of a conversation, to mm -hmm. circle the conversation back to who we are, you know. Um, and, you know, you've also, you, you've written that, you, you know, you said, we try to be scientific and remove the human bias. But at the end of the day, what we end up learning about is our own selves and our own species. And I think you are, you're actually pushing a boundary and just being really art open about that and articulate about it, acknowledging it and naming, and then naming it this civic perspective that flows from the work you do. Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, you may have said it on Facebook. You're another person who proved that all of these places can be as substantive as we choose to make them. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, yes. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are both two people who... Um, or not, well, let's say not, non, not religious in a traditional sense, 21st century people. You, Marie, you said it, you're atheist, and, and Natalie, that spirituality is something that you, it's complex. And, you know, honestly, you said we don't have a definition. I think, I think there are as many definitions as there are lives in a room, and that it's never static, so it's always evolving. And yet both of you ponder and use the language of the soul, and I find that fascinating, and I just want to—I want to talk about what that is. What, what are we talking about, Maria? You actually 
spoke, you did a commencement address. Was it last year? I think two years at ago. Penn, your alma mater, Annenberg School at Penn. And, and it was, the soul was the heart of it. What do you, uh, you know, here, here's some language from that. You, uh, I mean, the soul simply as shorthand for the seismic core of personhood from which our beliefs, our values, and our actions radiate. And you've also said that the people most whole and most alive are always those unafraid and unashamed of the soul. So what is that? And I should mention, I was uh, talking with the wonderful Parker Palmer, <laughs> I don't know if Parker's here, um, as I was thinking about that. He, he writes about that beautifully yes, in his he books. Does. And um, I mean, you know, there are certain words that have been vacated of meaning by overuse and misuse. And we have the choice of either relinquishing them altogether or trying to reclaim them in some way. And soul is one of those words. I chose to go with trying to imbue it with the meaning that I live with in relation to it. Um, it is, of course, related to the notion of the self. Now, I do not believe in a solid self, as I don't believe in a soul that outlives the rest of the constellation of being, the physical being that is us. But at the same time, it is where we spring from, the us-ness of us, is rooted in this very complex interplay of values, beliefs, ideas, friends, places we've been, smells we've remembered, and, you know, and um, it's impossible to be a person without that. And because of that, it's impossible to be a, a decent person without tending to it, the way you would tend to a garden that you want to bloom beautifully. Hmm. Mm. Natalie, I don't know if you meant this as a definition of the soul, but it strikes me as a way in. Um, we are that complexity. We are the universe becoming self-aware. Mm. Yeah. Um, it, it took 13.7 billion years for the atoms to come together to create the portal to the universe, which is my physical self. So in that statement is this idea or the fluidity of time and space. Um, and I kind of see it all at once. And me is this, I don't know what me is. I just feel part of everything. And I feel such deep gratitude for being able to take this conscious look at the universe, at myself as being part of the universe. Um, so that perspective and this idea of the universe evolving from energy into simple matter, into gradual complexity, into microbes on planet Earth, and then two billion years later, the symbiotic merger of a bacteria and an archaea to create a eukaryote, which exploded complexity, creating us, the, you know, the complexity and intelligent life that we have today. Um, that, that vision and just how improbable is my birth and this opportunity just fills me with deep gratitude and sustains me through the darkest moments. Um, I don't know if, I don't know what that means in terms of a soul. I, mm -hmm. I don't prescribe to anything more. I don't need anything more, mm -hmm. frankly. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm completely at home with the idea that I've had this ephemeral time here to do this, and I'm just so grateful, and that's enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that deserves a call. Maria, here's something else you wrote, you said in that speech, um, just extending that you said cynicism is a hardening, a calcification of the soul. Hope is a stretching of its ligaments, a limber reach for something greater. I do think that cynicism is you know, it's easy to judge it harshly, but really it's a defense mechanism, an ill-adaptive, maladaptive defense mechanism when we feel bereft of hope. And um, 
to live with hope in times that reward cynicism and in many ways call for cynicism, I think is a tremendous act of courage and resistance. Mm-hmm. I find it just overall fascinating. You know, one of the projects we have, or we just, we have something we call Public Theology Reimagined, which is really just a body of work within our body of work, but I think it's also an idea, and it's how in the 21st century we are, you know, people like you um, are picking up questions and language and ideas that in previous centuries of human history were the domain of, you know, pretty strictly of theologians and philosophers. You know, what is the soul? And... Uh, I don't remember, Natalie, you talking to me about how you thought about love, like dark matter, like dark, knowing about dark matter helped you think about the nature of love or, or hope. Um, you, you also have been writing openly um, about, uh, you have four children, right? And your, young, your, is it your youngest daughter who's 15? 16 16, mm-hmm. who has MS. Mm-hmm. And I see you reflecting on that um, also, just reflecting on how she is living with that and b- becoming a human being with and along and you know, through that, um, and you being at a gathering where people were, where scientists, I think, were discussing ethical issues relevant to modern day society. You know what I'm talking about? This post you wrote. I'm sorry, ethical issues with regard uh, relevant to modern day society, mm-hmm. and somebody was talking about the future of human reproduction and freezing. Oh. You know, genetic yeah. testing to select mm-hmm. offspring. Mm-hmm. And you, and then there was a, you, you know, you were reflecting on how our weaknesses are also our strengths, and our weaknesses open up potential for new knowledge and empathy and cultural evolution toward goodness. And I just, you know, that's for you as an, I mean, you're, and that's you as a mother. And it's also you as an astrophysicist. It is, yeah, absolutely. Um, can I just warn everybody I'm a total crier? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. if I uh, and can't if you, speak you want, anymore, because we're getting like heavy yeah. now. And if you don't want to talk about this, that's okay too. <laughs> no, I don't mind. It's you just can, I am a crier, you so can be cry warned. In this room. I mean, you're, you're bringing this stuff out. Yeah. Um, uh, gosh. Um, it's funny how these bigger questions, the science that I do and what I'm living at home and the civic realm are so interconnected. Um, also shaped by um, just thoughts about Western culture and our, our definition of success and our aversion to failure and um, all of those things are connected, and that piece that you're drawing from tried to bring those ideas together. Um, so yes, I have a daughter who's living with MS, and it's been very difficult, and she has a lot of questions about it. Um, and, and, and the story that Chris is referring to is, um, I was at a dinner with some very interesting people. It was kind of a think tank, and... Um, we started talking about genetics and the idea that we're getting to the point in genetics where we could test our genetic material of our eggs, our embryos, and we could actually pick the child that we want to give birth to. And I started to wonder, well, would my daughter choose to not give birth to a child that had a propensity for MS? We don't even know what causes MS. And so it begged the question, you know, when is a bug considered a feature? There, there, there was actually an engineer mathematician there who mm-hmm. said, oh, well, yeah, what is her role in society? You know, her existence inspires us to go out and push the boundaries of what we know. We're studying the brain in part because she exists. And we will learn things that will benefit everybody. So her, she has a role. And so when does a bug like that become a feature? And it just really inspired a lot of questions. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and also, I think our definition of um, people of different abilities have always been uh, instrumental to creative culture. And you look at the history of why we're here through the great breakthroughs in art and science and philosophy. So many people had 
mental illness, physical disability, where do you draw the line? I mean, according to the DSM half a century ago, I would have been an aberration. I mean, homosexuality was considered a mental disorder and some, you know, Alan Turing was basically killed for it, yeah. as was Oscar Wilde indirectly. You know, that kind of thing that, where do you draw the line? And, you know, Temple Grandin, she's been doing yeah. really beautiful work on, and basically she says, you know, people with autism are on the spectrum are responsible for Silicon Valley without us, you know, <laughs> there would be no technology as we know it. <laughs> right. Okay. So it, it's, it's a really, I think, um, morality always kind of lags behind the technologies that become possible. Um, and so now as we're looking into genetic engineering and AI and these questions, um, the, the moral panic that follows is only building up and we're nowhere close to answering the moral questions that, that are um, pragmatically possible with the technology, but right. are they permissible? Yeah, and just tying this back to the civic realm, you know, we're living in a moment right now where the 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 um, underprivileged are demonized, right? Yeah. And I I'm finding that so alarming, uh, you know, to make America great again, and this whole mentality of of there's no space for for failure or even this word failure, you know, it's not the right, right word. Right, right. Um, there's no space for that. And, and I'm just, I just have a real problem with that. And it does relate to, to my daughter in this fundamental way. And, and then you, you brought up this idea of evolution towards goodness. Yes, I just, that phrase, cultural evolution towards goodness. Cultural evolution yeah. towards goodness. That's your I, phrase. Yeah, I mean, I... It's <laughs> your phrase, by the way. <laughs> I did say that, yeah. yeah. Right, I remember now. Um, well, uh, let's go back to this idea of the evolution of complexity, the arise of complexity, and here we are, t the universe become aware. And, you know, let's take that a step further and think about emergent behaviors and, and what we can become. What can we become? What potentials are yet to be realized? What do we know about the empathic brain? How are we evolving? And what, what about the decisions that we make now in the civic realm that decide who lives and dies? And how does that affect our evolution, right? Because it will, because these are life and death situations. So, so what we do in the civic realm does affect cultural uh, us culturally, we evolve a cultural evolution, but cultural evolution leads to biological evolution, right? And right. it can go e many ways. Right. Not necess I don't think that there's a law to the universe that says there is an evolution towards goodness. Yeah. That we decide. That we decide. Yeah. What was the phrase? What, what, it's our responsibility to figure out what the world is supposed oh, to become. William Stafford. Yes. Figure out what the world is trying to be. Is trying to be. Yeah, whether yes. it knows it or not. Let's, I'm adding that part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, this is going so quickly and it's so beautiful and so big. Um, the whole notion of mystery and uncertainty, which uh, for us, you know, the three of us and, and I think everybody in this room, we have enough ground beneath our feet um, for... Uh, mystery and uncertainty to, to be even sometimes thrilling. Not, not always thrilling. No, that's, I mean, that's a ridiculous statement because I don't like uncertainty. I like mystery. I don't like uncertainty. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> unless I'm just really rested, maybe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that I think a feature of this moment, in fact, that maybe led us to this moment where now we're, we're creating real crisis is because we had this period, because we just live in this moment, this century that opened with just these vast open questions. And, this, and with, with, we can kind of see what's failing. We can see that schools don't make sense and politics doesn't make sense and the economy doesn't make sense and medicine doesn't make sense. And, and, so, and, and, and it, people in this room, in where, where they live, are creating the new forms that will be working for us 20 years from now, I think. But right now we're in that in-between time of like, it's very clear what's broken and it's not so clear what will follow. Um, and, and science is all about like delighting and right, that just, okay, so you, 
so you answered this question, and then you're just so excited about what questions this new thing raises. Um, and I'm aware that this is that this is also a divide in our culture because I think there uh, this thing you're talking about. There's so many people who are really vulnerable, really on the edge. Like they're uncertain about whether they're going to be able to eat or. You know, the ground has been pulled out in a very short period of time from, you know, the, what they thought they might be able to expect for their children, um, just in terms of having a livelihood. Um, I, I'm just throwing that out there. I think about this a lot. This, the, uh, the, and I don't want to use the word privilege in a way that this should shame us, but like just those of us who are safe enough to, to love uncertainty and and mystery, um, but that this is part of our divide, like at some deep psychological and biological level. I've been thinking about this all week. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I feel, I do feel privileged to be here, sorry, and I, and I do feel guilty about it. Not guilty, let me, let me rephrase that. I'm keenly aware that having space and time for contemplation is a luxury. I'm deeply aware of communities that don't have that space and time, that every day is, is just survival. I lived in Brazil for five years. It was a third world country. I guess it still is, um, but it was undergoing a very harsh political reality at that time. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm just tied into that, and I keep thinking about those people as we're here over this weekend talking about contemplating poetry and the meaning of love and all of these great, grandiose questions. I kept thinking, these, how mm -hmm. do we push that out? What mm -hmm. is the common language? How do we, you know, Marilyn's beautiful poetry about, you know, these, these communities, this history, and, and I'm thinking about increasing diversity in science. We've got such a problem with, with a lack of diversity in science, and how can I use my small influence to maybe help that, and, you know, what could be my role, and do I even have the right to do that, and what's my language, and what's my empathic connection to these communities, and knowing in the background that they don't have the space and time to think about these things. It's just, I don't have any answers, No, but it's very much on my mind. Yeah. yeah, that's a question we're living. Because there's not an answer we can live right now. Or at least not, not collect, like one by one, we can figure, we can, we can, we can live that. I mean, these are the hard questions, right? Yeah. We heard, um, sorry, I don't remember the gentleman's names, but the man who was subjected to racial profiling and when the stories about Palestine-Israeli conflict. Lucas and Rami. Lucas yeah, Johnson yeah. I mean, that was, man, okay, that's the front line. That's what I want to hear about. Mm -hmm. Do we need bridge people like that, right? How do, we, how do we do that? I don't want to be blind to the anger and the suffering and... I bring it on, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to be that person. I, I think the our being here. I mean, I, you know, when Friday night during the opening, um, the gentleman from 1440 Multiversity said, "I don't know why we're here, but it's not an accident." And I thought, "Oh, yes, it is. We have to come to terms with the fact that it is chance." I mean, I spent 18 years in a developing third world country, and if I begin to think that I'm somehow special or by, I have merited my way here as opposed to all the people who didn't, there's so much chance that played into it. There's so much chance in what you were saying, in the evolution of life. I mean, we are a cosmic accident. And so those of us who have been lucky, meaning have benefited from the flip side of chance that people who are of less advantage have benefited from the other side of chance, we have the responsibility to, to expand that beyond our own chance-bound privilege and, and keep thinking of how we can expand that and grow that. Because, I mean, the, the commencement address you cited was actually, I started thinking about it on the bike path when I was <laughs> overtaken by a man who, I just had all this like rage of how dare he, you know, he was on an electric bicycle and I felt, I felt like I was like <laughs> honestly pedaling and suddenly this guy has this existential advantage, you know? <laughs> and I, just as I'm getting really indignant, I see on the back of his jacket there's a restaurant delivery um, sign and I think, oh, he's just 
doing this to survive. He doesn't have like some upper hand on me. And you know, I'm I'm an I'm I'm an immigrant from a poor country. I I could have been the delivery person on the bicycle. How how did I end up here? I have no idea. I mean, so much chance. And of course, chance and choice conspire in our lives. And I think about that all the time. But okay, so we have had a certain you know hand that's been dealt to us of chance and what we make of that with our choice, including the choice to be here, that is how we expand chance for everyone else. That's mm-hmm. all we can do. That's the most we can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love this. I love this place we've come to right now. And, and, I, and it exists in a creative tension also with, you know, the beauty and the grandeur of the science you do and the beauty and the grandeur of the ideas and people and teachers you bring to us. And, you know, so, Maria, you've been working on this uh, universe in verse, like bringing together poetry and science. Mm. And I wanted to talk about that, and, um, and here we are kind of drawing to the end of our time, and it doesn't, in any kind of organic way, follow from what's just been put into the room. But how does it, how does well, it, how it's connected in you? It absolutely does. I mean, so the Universe in Verse was an event that I hosted last year, which was very much in response to what was, to basically the morning after the election. I um, had made an appointment the week before to go visit the Academy of American Poets. I'm friends with the executive director, Jen Benk, and I just sort of um, dig through their archives and look for interesting things from the past. They go back 84 years. This is the country's oldest, largest institution of poetry. And often think about how they relate to today. So I, I make this appointment as, I think, a treat to myself for the morning after the election, you know. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I go there, and everybody's bereft. The se- there's, it's seven young people, mostly on her staff and her, sitting on this trove of correspondence of every great poet of the last 84 years. And we just sort of bleary-eyed pull at random. I think I had a Mary Baracus file. And we just start going through it. And Jen and I are sitting, and I'm thinking, you know, look at these people. Our, our cultural elders lived through so much worse and lived through it and wrote poems through it and, and fought and resisted and got us to where we are. We can get through this, and maybe there's something in poetry that helps. And meanwhile, I mean, I'm a big believer that our personal lives are inseparable from our public contribution. And I think spending time with any great artist, thinker, their diaries, their letters become so clear. But in my life, nothing I've done, including brain pickings, has come from anything other than my own need. And so I'm sitting there thinking this, thinking, I need, I need some kind of relief. And meanwhile, my, my closest human being is a um, scientist and astrophysicist who's been a guest on this show, Jan Eleven. And we've been having all these conversations. And as all of this is happening, you know, the news comes in that the NEA is on the chopping block, the National Endowment for the Arts is um, poets basically get the most out of it because they're the only artists who can apply for individual grants. And in the 65 years of the endowment's history, you can't even make the list of the number of poets for whom it, grants from the NEA have made the difference between waiting on tables and you know publishing a body of work that we now revere. We would not have had so many of these poets without these grants. So that's on the chopping block. Meanwhile, the EPA is under threat for being dismantled, which is, as I mentioned, a consequence of my great hero, Rachel Carson's work. And science is under assault. Fact, alternative facts become a thing, you know? And so I'm sitting with these different fragments that I care deeply about, and somehow it just coalesced into this idea, okay, well, let's do an event that bridges poetry and science that is both an act of protest and a fundraising. And we did it to, we just had an evening of poems that were about great scientists and scientific discoveries that have gotten us to where we are today. And um, we donated half the proceeds to the Academy of American Poets, which is funded by the NEA, and half to the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is kind of like the non-government version of the EPA. And I thought it was this weird esoteric idea that would get 15 you know, geeky people show up no, and we'd all clap yeah. for each other. And the line was thrice around the block. 900 people was all we could fit with thousands on the live stream. It was profound. And for me personally, it was the best spent three months of, two months of my life planning it and, and just the most uplifting experience. We had Elizabeth Alexander, who you've had on the show, and 
um, just beautiful oh, you had people. So many people. We had such lovely people. <laughs> and yeah. you were writing about it from afar, right? From California. It, it, it was amazing. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. Go watch it and be inspired. It was fantastic. We're trying to make it annual. I think we're going to do it again this year with a much needed focus now on earth science and environmental protection. We're calling it the earth inverse. Um, because of all the, you know, pretty dreadful climate policy that we've seen in the last year. In New York, April 24th, we haven't announced it yet, but it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like it's so important what, what she's done here. Um, you know, the, if there's one message I can communicate during this conversation, it's that um, at the nexus of spirituality and science is wonder. And I, I just want to make sure that people understand that that's a common experience to both. Um, I've been very impressed this week um, with your words, just words in general, the poetry, the lyricism, the way the words roll out of your, off of your tongues. It's impressive to me. I don't have that, I don't have that ability. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying really, really hard. Um, my point is I come from a side, a different language, mm -hmm. language of numbers yes. or language of explaining the physical phenomena in our universe. And if we can get common language or if we can understand each other, I think that's so tremendously important. I had the opportunity to speak to some of the poets who are here and who have, who have shared their poetry. And one in particular mentioned a certain anxiety about talking about science, but yet feels all of that wonder. And, and it puzzles me. And I'm wondering if it's just a, a language barrier. Mm. There are some examples in our times of people that have married the two so spectacularly. Mm. And, and the one to bring would you up... Would you read some? Do is, have a moment from some... Diane Ackerman, Ackerman <laughs> and Carl Sagan, yes. who happened to be at Cornell at the same time. Uh, Diane, from the perspective of a naturalist, and, and uh, she was in the humanities, I think, ultimately. Carl Sagan from the science side. And, uh, and they both met you know, at this nexus of wonder and brought their different languages and combined them in such a special, fantastic way. Mm. Um, and he, he was her doctoral advisor. She's, she's yeah. one of very few working poets who has a science background. She has a PhD. Yeah. Uh, she was in, in our show, and she's doing it again this year. Uh, but she, uh, the way I found her work is that uh, through a footnote. I find a lot of things through footnotes. Yeah. Um, in 1977, I believe, Carl Sagan sent his buddy Timothy Leary in prison, <laughs> <laughs> who was in prison for conducting some interesting scientific experiments with hallucinogenics. Yes. So, so Sagan sends Leary this care package in prison and says, you know, there's this poet, young poet at Cornell that you might like. Her name is Diane Ackerman, and she's written a book called The Planets, A Cosmic Pastoral, and it's about the solar system. And of course, I go and I find the book, which is sadly long out of print, but apparently in one of the anthologies, which yeah. I don't Jaguar know. Jaguar of Sweet Laughter, it's um, in there, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and... Uh, that's how, that's how she sort of entered into science, and now a lot of her vast huh. body of work is infused with this poetic love of nature. And I mean, we, we call nature something outside of ourselves, and I have yeah. such a problem with this notion of the environment as if it's the thing that surrounds Which separates us, us from it. There's Ptolemism in yes. this, you know? I just recently learned this, because I read this beautiful biography of Alexander von Humboldt, which I know you read as well. What's the name? Andrea uh, Wolf. Something in the, nature. Yeah, Andrea yeah, Wolf. The Invention, uh, of, the invention nature. of Nature. Yeah. And he's the one who coined the term cosmos the way we throw it, or p picked mm, it up in modernity. I didn't know that. But it didn't mean the universe out there. And you know who coined it that? Meant a poet. Milton, the first use he did, of the word out space there? in yeah. the English language so appears in, chill. yes, line 652 of book one of Paradise Lost. <laughs> <laughs> I give you Maria Popova. <laughs> and there it is, her encyclopedic memory. But Humboldt meant the cosmos was us. It was the cosmos yeah. of humanity and the natural world and everything out there. But it, there was no division. There was no environment, as you say, because there was no separation. 
We have to finish, which is so sad. <laughs> but we, but we don't. We're not. We're gonna. We're gonna draw it out. Um, uh, here's another. I just have to throw this out there from Brain Pickings. Another definition of poetry from E.E. E. Cummings. Um, poetry is feeling, not knowing or believing or thinking. Almost anybody can learn to think or believe or know, but not a single human being can be taught to feel. Why? Because whenever you think or you believe or you know, you're a lot of other people. But the moment you feel, you're nobody but yourself. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. Carry on. <laughs> um, I... Um, I would actually love for each of you to read a poem, and we have a select collection up here. But you know, I, and I have a bunch of them printed. Um, I mean, Natalie, you had written about this poem of Diane Ackerman, "School Prayer," which is a possibility. But how do you guys? What do you? What would well, you like to read? We, we need to tell the story. We need yeah. to tell the story. <laughs> so we get to, we arrive in the green room, like, "Hey, Maria, what poem did you choose?" You know, because we were all both thinking, I guess, of, of choosing a poem to read. She says, well, 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 so we should preface this by saying that we're gathered here on the 88th anniversary, anniversary of, of the, the discovery, discovery of Pluto, <laughs> which we had both arrived at. Right. Just, we didn't talk to each other, right? No. And, so, of course, what poem did we choose? Pluto, Pluto by <laughs> Diane, Diane Ackerman. <laughs> and, and no, but here's, here's where it gets worse. So I had sent Krista other poems this yes, morning. Yes, you didn't send and that one. The reason I was thinking about Pluto is because I was thinking about language. You know, Pluto was declassified as a planet as we <laughs> discovered more and more. And then the International Astronomical Union had to define what a planet was. And I mean, that's what, that was my line of thought. So I had other poems that I sent you. And then this morning, I remember the Diane Ackerman, which is a long, long, long Pluto poem. And because it's in an out-of-print book that is not on the internet, and it's my copy at home, I text my, my friend Jana. I'm like, I'm having a planetary poetic emergency. Can I, you please scan and text me the pages? I love that Jana Levin is with us in that way. <laughs> yeah. And so she did, but Natalie knows that it's in an anthology that's not out-of-print. So it she was in my pocket. She just copied it into her notebook. I've been carrying it around all week. <laughs> so I, I think you should do the honors oh, and read goodness. the part that relates to your work? Um, well, I, it is a very long poem. And there are many kind of, not points, that's the wrong word, but many um, messages, I guess. I'm realizing I didn't bring my glasses up to the stage here. I am 51, you have to realize. Um, so one segment, she just talks about wonder and, and her passion for knowledge. Um, and so that's very tempting to read. There, then there's another uh, piece here that I think I'm going to actually prefer. And the reason I'm doing this is because it relates to the search for life. Uh, and that's what I do. That's the long-term goal. So um, again, this is a passage, one snippet from the larger poem called Pluto. The bread mold, the bread mold and I have much in common. We're both alive. The wardrobe of our cells is identical. We speak the same genetic code. The death of a star gave each of us life. But imagine a brand spanking new biology. Just as when a window abruptly flies open, the room grows airy and floods with light. So awakening to alien life form will transfigure how we think of ourselves and our lives. In my bony wrist alone, the DNA could spin a yarn, filling thousands and thousands of library volumes. But one day, we'll browse in the stacks of other galaxies. Given the sweet generosity of time that permits the blue-green algae and the polar bear, the cosmic flannel must be puckered with life. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to read a poem by Denise Levertov, who is um, one of my favorite poets, but also one day when I was ruffling, rummaging through the archives of the Academy, I found this from the 70s, um, call for entries for this very prestigious anthology um, that the guy who was assembling it 
had asked 17 poets to, to write a statement of poetics, of whom Diane, uh, Denise Levertov was the only woman, as was the case, sadly, at the time. Um, and she wrote, I think, the most beautiful statement, which was quite short. This was a, obviously the peak of a great deal of political unrest. And she said, the purpose of poetry is to awaken sleepers by means other than shock. And it is so precise and so perfect. And this is a poem that I'm um, including this year in the Earth in Verse. Um, and it's called Sojourns in a Parallel World. We live our lives of human passions, cruelties, dreams, concepts, crimes, and the exercise of virtue in and beside a world devoid of our preoccupations, free from apprehension, though affected certainly by our actions. A world parallel to our own, though overlapping. We call it nature, only reluctantly admitting ourselves to be nature too. Whenever we lose track of our own obsessions, our self-concerns, because we drift for a minute, an hour even, of pure, almost pure response to that insouciant life, cloud, bird, fox, the flow of light, the dancing pilgrimage of water, vast stillness of spellbound ephemera on a lit window pane, animal voices, mineral hum, wind conversing with rain, ocean with rock, stuttering of fire to coal, then something tethered in us, hobbled like a donkey on its patch of gnawed grass, grass and thistles, breaks free. No one discovers just where we've been when we're caught up again into our own sphere, where we must return indeed to evolve our destinies. But we have changed a little. Thank you, Natalie Batalia and Maria Popova.